Folks, we are taking up Genesis 28, so if you want to make your way over, it's Genesis chapter 28, and our reading will begin there at verse 10. That's Genesis 28, and starting at the 10th verse. Before I read, let me just make a couple of comments, um, just to situate our reading. You remember that up to this point, we have focused largely on Isaac. Uh, You remember really from chapter 25, the focus is on Isaac and his household, the blessings that God has given. And then when we come to chapter 27, the focus in many ways remains on Isaac, uh, but it is almost as an aside. You remember the principal theme of chapter 27 is the question of who will actually receive the blessing. And so you have conspiracy in Isaac's domestic situation. And that really occupies the entirety of the 27th chapter. At the beginning of chapter 28, that section really comes to a close by reminding us of Esau and his alliances with the world. Uh, You remember that at the end of of chapter 26, you have Esau, a man who's not only a man of the world, uh, in the sense that he's out and about, but a man who has confederated himself through marriage with the world. Well, we see that that kind of thing continues as you look at the first couple of verses of chapter 28. We leave, then, Isaac. As our focus turns to Jacob and his obligation now to find a wife of the house of Laban. As we look at this text, verses 10 to 22, Uh, you'll notice that really it it neatly divides into two sections. Verses 10 to 15, uh, really our focus is driven primarily to God's covenant. And then, verses 16 to the end, you have Jacob's response that comes to us in the form of a vowel. And so that's how we'll divide the text. We'll take up, first of all, verses 10 to 15, as it shows to us the covenant of God, and then verses 16 to 22, as we find Jacob's vowel. And so, beloved, hear now the word of our God. Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Uh, That's a journey of nearly 70 miles. Just keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Just briefly, I want you to notice, if you have your Bibles and turn to the previous chapter, chapter 26. 
you'll notice that in substance, the, the covenant that God here makes with Jacob is very similar to that which, of course, Isaac himself received. In substance, it's the same covenant. And I think we're supposed to recognize that, of course. But I also want you to notice that there are dissimilarities as well. In these couple of verses, we encounter Jacob having the covenant promise renewed to him, but in ways that Isaac didn't have it. Have it. I want you to notice, if you go back to chapter 15, just in your minds, you remember that, that there, Abraham, after he's asked, is Eliezer of Damascus, my head servant, is he going to be the promised child? Is he the seed of promise? And the Lord responds by, by bringing Abraham into a deep sleep, and there renewing the covenant that is given to us even in our text. The promise, of course, that the seed would be numerous. And, of course, that the Lord God would be his God. And through that seed, the nations indeed would be blessed. Here you have Jacob resembling more his grandfather than his father. At least God's dealings with him are far more similar to that of Abraham. Now, as you look at this text, you might ask a basic question. And the first question you might ask is, well, well, why here? Why here? Well, friend, I think as we leave the events of chapter 27, there is an answer that comes to us rather directly. Jacob was blessed, just as God had promised that Jacob would be. But through what means? Through what machinations did that blessing come? It came through subterfuge. It came as Jacob had deceived his father. And so one might ask, well, is that then the actual blessing of God? In this 28th chapter, God confirms that notwithstanding Jacob's sin, notwithstanding the subterfuge that we've seen in the previous chapter, the blessing indeed would fall on Jacob. In other words, Isaac did function as a prophet in spite of Jacob's sin. The blessing indeed was Jacob's. And that, of course, from free grace. But we'll return to that theme when we close this morning. We'll pick up our reading here then again at verse 16. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful. Now, literally, that is fearful or awesome. How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God. Now, the words house of God in the, in the original, you'll, you'll recognize the place name uh, that is translated for us. House is Beit. El, in this case, is the name for God. Beit El. Uh, so this is the house of God, or if we often read it, Bethel. I want you to notice that there is an example of prolepsis here that we can't, we can't miss. So in Genesis 12, you remember when, when, Abraham, when Abram rather, comes south, and God there, first of all, communicates the blessing that Abraham would receive. You remember that it is near Beit El, Bethel, where Abraham himself erects an altar. Now, it wasn't called Bethel in Abram's day, that Moses here is giving to us the place name that it would later receive. But again, this is another striking similarity that, that brings Jacob closer in his experience to Abraham than it does to Isaac. Jacob is far more like his grandfather, and, and God's dealings with him are far more like that of his grandfather. 
There, you're near Bethel. Abram builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Jacob does likewise. Again, verse 17. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So we'll stop our reading there for this morning. As you look at this text, I think we are given really an opportunity to focus on Jacob. And really to focus on Jacob for the first time. You remember in chapter 25, our focus is immediately fixed on Isaac. And granted, you and I are obviously driven to think about Jacob and Esau at various points in the narrative. But the idea is we are thinking about Isaac's household. We don't encounter Jacob except as he is in the house of his father until this point. Jacob here emerges really on his own. And I think, I think for that reason, it would be useful for us just to stop and, and to meditate on what the scriptures have taught to us about this man. And the first thing I want you to notice is that the scriptures are communicating to us character development. And I mean that not, not in the way that perhaps it's used today, but when we think about character development in the scriptures, the scriptures are presenting to us somebody and they're presenting that person to us either to demonstrate the person's godliness or their wickedness. And the scriptures through the divine historians will lead us, will lead us to think about these men or women. And we need to be led. Okay, so when we think about the scriptures and how characters are presented to us, it's the scriptures who should be making the judgments on whether or not this person is a pious or impious individual. When it comes to Jacob, that's really crucial. I would, sit, I would submit to you that Jacob is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and maligned of all the characters in Scripture. I really mean that. And I think we have that reason for I think that's the case for a number of reasons. First of all, I think there's a simple issue of mistranslation. For some inexplicable reason, um, English translation um, has typically rendered what you have in chapter 25, 27 as Jacob being a plain man. When in fact, the original is very clear. The word there is perfect. And, and so the scriptures are telling us that Jacob occupies a line of men like Noah, because that's precisely how Noah is described in Genesis 6, and even outside of Genesis, Job 1, how Job himself is described. A perfect man, that is a God-fearer, one who loves God and in his generation stands out for his piety. That's our first point. The scriptures teach to us that, regard, that, that aspect of Jacob's life that often I think we overlook. And I think that overlooking largely comes through a mistranslation. But there's also a sense of misreading. Again, if you go back to chapter 25 and we look at Jacob, 
And we see that last episode where you have Jacob and Esau over the porridge, or the lentils, rather. The question is, of course, what do we make of Jacob in that scene? And, and you know how often this is read, right? I don't mean to dictate this to you. Uh, we look at that scene and we see here a famished Esau, a famished Esau who's looking for food and all that Jacob can think, his brother, is how he can steal something from his elder brother. And so the story goes that Jacob is always the conniving sibling. He's always the one, as it were, scheming in the background. The only problem is, of course, at the end of Genesis 25, the inspired historian tells us that that's not at all what we're supposed to take from the story. Note what what the text says. Genesis 25, at the end of verse 34, and thus Esau despised his birthright. So automatically, you and I and our generation, for some inexplicable reason, take a text that itself it tells us we're supposed to see Esau's sin, and we turn it somehow into being Jacob's conniving. I want you to notice that that's a generational problem. If you look through the history of interpretation, Jewish and Christian, this idea that Jacob is always the, the, the kind of conniving, scheming sibling is a very new idea. Um, And I think a lot of that comes from the idea that our interpretation of Scripture is inextricably tied to our own godliness. In a generation of decline, we don't understand piety. And so earlier earlier exegetes on texts like these really, I think, help us. They help us to think about Jacob in a very different way, and, and they really help us to think about it as the Scriptures present him to us. Now, if we're going to approach the text that way, how should we look at Jacob? If what I've said before is true, then we do need we do need to ask, how do the scriptures themselves present him to us? A friend, there's no mistake that Jacob longs for the covenant blessing. But what was that blessing? This is the first point that you and I need to be corrected in. Our patriarchs in the scriptures were not looking for land and posterity only. You remember that the substance of the covenant, as it's communicated to us in Genesis 15, the first verse, is primarily that in the covenant, God became their God. That he became their exceeding great reward. And you remember in the writer, when the writer to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, brings up the, the motives that fueled the patriarchs. It was this. That in the case of Moses, it was because he saw the God who was invisible. For Abraham and for Sarah, it was because they longed for a city whose builder and maker was God. The idea is the covenant that Jacob desires is not simply for land, wealth, and progeny. In other words, his desires is after God, that God would be his. And what do we see then? We see then Jacob is a man, as we find in chapter 25, who longs to be with the covenant people of God. Esau is out in the world. He makes confederacies with the world. Jacob stays with the covenant people, even if that means at 40 years old he's still unmarried. He would rather be with the covenant people of God than out in the world. There's a second aspect of Jacob's life that we can't miss. And that is, if we're reading the scriptures carefully, Jacob emerges as one of the most afflicted characters that we've seen thus far. 
And in order for us to see that, we need to look at how Isaac is presented to us. So let's step away from Jacob just for a moment and take stock of what the scriptures say to us about his father. So I've just given you some exegetical caution with regard to Jacob. And that caution is that in a generation of decline, we need to allow the scriptures to be very, very much directing our thinking about any individual that it presents to us. We should be very careful about making judgments. If the scriptures do not come to us and condemn a person or action, we need to be very cautious or very, very certain that the action itself is sinful before we make such judgment. This is, I think, why Jacob has often been maligned. But taking that caution on board with regard to Isaac, I want you to notice how the scriptures present him to us. First of all, unmistakably, Isaac has a preference for Esau. Now, friend, that's striking, isn't it, for, for a couple of reasons. It's striking because, first of all, Isaac, of course, would have known that Esau was not the one who was to receive the blessing of Abraham. That was to fall to Jacob. Despite election, Isaac prefers Esau. But there's something else that's really striking about this, isn't it? Isaac prefers Esau, even though Esau has manifested that he has a love for the world. I don't know about you, but that's striking. Jacob is a man who longs for the covenant promises, who who addicts himself, as it were, to be in the company of God's people. But still, Isaac's preference is for a man who will go to Canaan, who who will marry into the ungodly, and, and to the degree that, that this will grieve Rebekah and Isaac, still Esau is preferred. There's another aspect of this that's really striking, and that is what comes to us out of chapter 27. Isaac knows that God has chosen Jacob. And when Isaac comes to this point in his life, as he's nearing death, at least, at least he thinks he may be nearing death, as we said, he'll live for four more decades, but... But as Isaac thinks he's nearing death, he makes use of what is his prophetic office. That is, that work by which he would communicate the blessing of God to the one whom God had chosen to receive it. He abuses that prophetic office so as still to try to communicate to Esau what was only promised to Jacob. Now friend, I've I've not made any assessments on Isaac's life at this point. That's simply how Isaac emerges to us from the pages of Scripture. Now, what do we make of that? Now, for two weeks, I told you to pay attention to one phrase, and I kept telling you that I was going to return to that phrase at the end of our time, and I never did, so allow me to do that now. In chapter 26 and chapter 27, you find, uh, well, actually from chapter 25 and on, chapter 25, verse 28, Chapter 27, verse 4, 27, 9, and 27, 14. We're told that Isaac loved meat. He loved the venison that Esau prepared. A friend, I don't know about you, but that's rather striking, isn't it? We're told very, I mean, precious little about Isaac. But four times, the inspired historian reminds us that Isaac is directed by his appetite. In fact, in 2528, 
We're told that's the very reason he loves Isaac, uh, Esau. rather. I don't know about you, but friend, as I look at this text, Esau, Isaac becomes very much more an instrument of Jacob's affliction and very much less like his father Abraham uh, than, than I think we think at first brush. And, and there may even be some antecedents that, that should have guided us in this thinking. If you go back to chapter 24 in your minds, you remember that, that Abraham refuses to allow Eliezer of Damascus to take Isaac to go and find his wife. And you remember why that is. Uh, Calvin, I think, very helpfully put it to us this way. The idea is that Abraham fears lest after his own death, the inhabitants of the land should captivate Isaac by their allurements. Abraham refuses to allow Isaac out because he's concerned that Isaac will become worldly. What's staggering in this text is that Jacob is sent to do the very thing that Abraham refused to allow Isaac to do. Jacob will go to the very well that Eliezer of Damascus found Rebekah in. But Jacob will go himself. Isaac, though he had so many servants, Isaac, though we're told in chapter 26, was blessed beyond his father Abraham, refuses to send his servants to do this work, willingly subjects Jacob to the same potential temptations that Isaac himself would have been subjected to had Abraham not intervened. Friend, in that regard, I think you and I are supposed to look at Isaac as being a greater affliction to Jacob than Esau. Now, what, is, what do we do with that? Well, friend, I think, first of all, you and I, we need to address, we need to address the way in which Jacob responds to all of this. We need to address the fact that in chapter 27, Jacob responds in a way that's manifestly sinful. Chapter 27, though, though, of course, his desire is for the covenant blessings of God, and that's a good desire, it is, it is as it were, on the wrong foot. He ought to have waited patiently for God to intervene. But I want you to notice that in our text this morning, chapter 28, you and I do get a picture of a man, a man who is godly. And it comes to us in a way that perhaps doesn't, doesn't lend itself to our attention at first reading. It comes to us actually through the vowel that we find at the end of our text. Jacob is now sent out. By the way, he was sent out. He was not driven out. You and I should not be thinking that Isaac sent Jacob away because he was afraid that Esau was going to kill Jacob. Esau had already said that he was not going to kill Jacob until after his father's death. There's no haste here except for what you and I read into the text. The sense is that Isaac sends Jacob out, despite the fact that Jacob longed to be with the covenant people of God, despite the fact that he was going to the house of Laban, that Abraham knew, and that we'll find afterward, was a house that was filled with idolatry. Isaac sends him to a place of idols, And he sends him even though he could have sent servants, more servants than his father Abraham had. So Jacob is now in a kind of exile. And then it's there in his pilgrimage, his sojourn of the Lord interrupts. 
and gives him these precious promises. Jacob's response to that is the vow. And I know at first brush, that conditional language that we find there seems, seems a bit striking. Um, it almost seems as though, as though those if-then statements are, 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 are Jacob bartering with the Lord. But that's not how we're supposed to interpret that at all. I want you to notice that in those verses, what Jacob's communicating to us here are really expressions of his faith. What Jacob is doing is, he is saying that as the Lord blesses me in these ways, he is binding himself to return thankfully to God, what God has given. In fact, that's the very last verse of our text, where, the Lord, where he says that he will give to the Lord out of what he himself has received. Calvin, I think, very helpfully reminds us that this is the work of faith, where Jacob stops temptation in himself to, to, to perhaps forget God when this prosperity comes, and so imposes upon himself a superadded obligation to live out of thankful obedience to what God has given. That's really how we're supposed to understand this text. And as we look at Jacob's life in the, in the next several chapters, we'll see that that's precisely how Jacob lives. He lives as a man who casts himself upon the Lord, those covenant promises. He lives as a man who then seeks to follow that with thankful obedience. That's Jacob's covenant. Now as we close, friend, this morning, I do want to draw your attention to a number of themes that, that we've encountered thus far. So from chapter 25 on. I want you to notice that the scriptures are presenting to us a family. And it's presenting to us a family with, of course, failings. But it's especially keen to show us the failings of the father and its implications for the son. We see that with regard to Isaac. In chapter 25, we're told that Isaac's favoritism stemmed from his love for Esau's venison. It was Isaac's appetite that led him to contradict the election of God and to fall into this work of favoritism. It was his appetite. Isn't it striking then at the end of chapter 25, it's Esau's appetite that leads us as the readers to see that he in fact despised his birthright. Isaac was a godly man, I think with failings, yes. But don't you see that the one man, though godly, who, was follow, who followed his appetite, sets something of a pattern that we see in the sun. Esau is a man who follows his appetite as well, not just of course for food but for all kinds of worldly inclinations. Here you have a picture of the sins of the father, manifest and even aggravated in the son. The second thing that you find in this text, though, um, as we look at just chapter 28, and this is for our comfort, is just the fact that Jacob in chapter 27 emerges as a man who, of course, is sinful. In fact, we've seen that that sin that is broken out in chapter 27 is made especially grievous because he invokes the name of God and the providence of God in his lie. But notwithstanding all of his sin, notwithstanding his being dismissed from the house that he loves, notwithstanding the possible temptations that await him in Padanaran, 
you find that God intervenes. He deals tenderly with Jacob, reminds him of his faithfulness. Here, as Jacob himself puts it, even in his sojournings, he has a foretaste of heaven. This is as the house of God, as the stairway of heaven. His pilgrimage, though filled with affliction, is also made, as it were, a foretaste of eternal glory. All of that is the mercy of God, and all of that should exalt for us the Lord's grace. But as we close, friend, of course, in chapter 28, that which really made all of this a foretaste of glory for Jacob was that he saw, yes, through a shadow, yes, through a sign, but he saw nonetheless what Nathanael was promised to see himself in John 1, that in Jesus Christ, the covenant of God will be fulfilled. Christ is the ladder linking heaven and earth, by which the blessings of God come to his people. Jacob saw that in peace in our text. And beloved, that was what made this, as it were, the very gate of heaven to the patriarch. May our hearts be fixed on this Christ. May we be a people more like Jacob, who long more and more for the covenant blessings of God than for the world. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Let's stand and pray. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you that you are God over all. That in your pleasure, you have chosen a lot of mankind. And you have promised that your grace omnipotently would come to them. That none could intervene. That just as in your judgments, none could stay your hand, so also in the communication of your blessing to the elect none could prevent. And Father, we thank you for a text like this that reminds us that, that you will, you will fulfill every gracious promise. And so we pray that you'd grant us faith. Lodge us, we pray, in the gospel. Uh, fix our gaze upon he in whom those promises are yea and amen. And Father, may we be a people then who in our sojourn are a people who are careful to return thanks, and to live then also out of thankful obedience for what we received. Father, for your own namesake, we pray, do this work. And meet with us, we ask, in the hour to come. We pray all in Jesus' name.